Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him What a week. I'm tired, 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 tired. I raced the Eastern States 20-miler on Sunday. It was the 20th anniversary race, and they were back to the original course, which starts in Kittery, Maine, crosses over into Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and runs the entire New Hampshire coastline, and ends up in Massachusetts. So you get three states in one race. I really like this course. And I didn't really know how to manage this race going in because my training's been a little wonky, as you know. I've been logging, you know, 30, 40 miles a week for a while, and I've done several three-hour long runs in this cycle, but I've done almost no speed or, or tempo work. The summary would be that I'm in really good aerobic shape, but lacking that sharp edge of racing. And for those of you not paying attention, the reason I can't do the tempo and the speed is that I have a heart condition. That sounds very serious, doesn't it? It's not that serious. Exercise-induced AFib that I've developed over the last couple of years where later in the workout, under load, my heartbeat becomes irregular, erratic. Not the beat itself, but the sequence of how the little chambers uh, twitch around. So I'm going to going to get that fixed in May, but I have to drag my old self through the Boston Marathon course first. And for those of you really not paying attention, this is Chris, your host, and this is the Run Run Live podcast, where we consider the transformational power of endurance sport. And from now on, please try to pay attention. There were five of us from my club at the race, but we weren't really running together because we're all sort of at different levels, different speeds, different goals. Um, I plan to just sort of hang back and let the race come to me and, you know, keep a watchful eye on my heart rate. But any of you who have raced with me know how that usually goes. I'm an excitable boy. And as usual, I struggled to stay slow and knocked off the early miles, you know, 45, 50 seconds a mile faster than my my safe goal or my safe plan. And I was worried I'd fall apart at the end, but I felt great. The AFib did kick in for the last few miles, but I never crashed and my legs were solid and I wasn't sore at all uh, on Monday. I wasn't sore at all. We got a great day for racing. It was sunny, mid-30s. It was a bit of a headwind, but nothing that was unmanageable. And this course is nice and flat. I've probably, I've probably run this race a dozen times or more. All in all, it was an, an excellent outing, and I had a blast. I have to be careful with that, that exuberance, because even though it was a good 20-mile run, that only gets you to the base of Heartbreak Hill. <laughs> And for the last 10K, my heart was whacking around in my chest pretty, pretty, pretty hard, like a deranged hamster. So while I was uh, sorting through the race photos this week, uh, I actually paid for one because it was so good. And I usually don't bother with race photos because, you know, I've run so many races. And the camera isn't that kind to me in general. And I am fairly cheap to pay what are usually fairly exorbitant prices. But this was a great picture that captured how much fun I was having and was only 10 bucks for a digital 
print, which, yeah, it's not bad. So we have a great show for you today. In the first section, I'm going to look at how road races have changed over the last 25 years that I've been running them and what that may or may not mean for us. In the interview, we have the final guest interview that was recorded for me at the end of last summer. Sorry, sorry, Ann, sorry, Laura, for the delay in getting it out. Uh, it's a great interview, by the way. Ann interviews Laura, who set the record as the youngest person to run all 50 U.S. states, and she did it by the age of 25 years old. She recounts how she started as an adamant non-runner, just trying to get to one mile and some of the wonderful transformative life lessons she learned along the way. The final section is a super interesting and maybe just a little bit creepy social experiment that I was running on strangers while traveling this week using the tools of the pickup artists. So props to my coach, Coach Jeff from BRS Fit. I told him in January after, you know, after I went to see the heart guy that I couldn't do any speed work, but I still wanted to race Boston and we figured out how to work with what we had. All long, slow build aerobic training. And I can feel the results in my runs over the last three weeks and I can see the strength in my body. So it just goes to show you folks where there's a will, there's a way on with the show. I am not afraid of my hard workouts. I embrace them as an opportunity to find my strength. Seven ways that road races have changed in one generation. So I started running local road races 25 years ago, and in that time, there have been a number of trends that have changed the landscape of road racing that I'm going to walk through with you. Race trend number one, there are more races. 25 years ago, there might have been somewhere around a half dozen road races scattered across the calendar year if you drew a 50-mile circle around my house. In 2015, that's going to be more like a 100 local events on the calendar in April for Massachusetts, and that's about 10 times more races than existed 20 to 25 years ago. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that there's 10 times more recreational runners? Uh, maybe, probably. It means that if you want to run a race, especially a 5K, you can find one, and you can find one close by on the day you want to run it. So the one impact of this trend is that the available local sponsor pool is getting wooed by many more race organizations. So new races may find that sponsorship is harder to find, especially cash sponsors. Another side effect is that races come and go, and there is a significant churn and die-off in the new races. Only the high-quality products with good management prosper for the long run. And in the end, this race Darwinism creates a calendar full of solid choices for us. Race trend number two, more variety. 25 years ago, there wasn't a lot of variety. There were five-mile road races, there were 10Ks, and there were marathons. There were very few half-marathons. And 5Ks were only for college cross-country and track events. In 2015, there is a full rainbow of events you can run. Demographics have changed in such a way that there's a big demand for the 5K distance. And this is one of the most popular distances. Many of the new 5K races are for charity, and they include a walk and a kid-specific option. It's just much more manageable than a longer race. The same is true for the half marathon, which didn't really exist 25 years ago, and now has greatly eclipsed the marathon in participation. If you're looking for something different, there are muck runs and color runs and tower climbs and all sorts of other novelty race options for you now as well. So what does this mean? It means that these 10 times more recreational runners aren't the same as the old timers racing hard at specific distances for a time. The new demographic has generated a need for more variety of races that put emphasis on participation and the experience of the event. Race trend number three, the rise of the charity race. Road races have always been fertile ground for generating contributions to charities. In the new explosion of events, this has become the norm. 
raises for specific individual charities are everywhere and allow people who care about that cause and want to make a personal statement and contribution to show up and run or walk or volunteer. So what does this mean? Well, it means that we have a healthy way to combine donations with getting out into the fresh air, right? The big positive here is that these events pull in runners who would otherwise avoid something like a competitive 10K. And this gives our sport a broader reach and paints it with a fair amount of cultural goodwill. These events can be entry points for people to discover running. It also tends to teach unprepared charities that putting out a race is neither easy nor all that lucrative. It's not the easy money that some think it is. There are much easier ways to make 6000 bucks than organizing a local 5K that may get 300 runners. To counter this problem is another trend, escalating entry fees. Uh, it's it's not uncommon for a local 5K to be asking 40, 50 or even 100 bucks for the entry. And if they can justify that premium and people show up, well, it certainly makes the numbers look better. Uh, remember that anything above the variable cost is all profit. Race trend number four, changing demographics. You probably won't believe me, but the road runner of 25 years ago was typically a young male who was super serious about his training and miles and racing. They were competitive runners in school, and they kept at it with road races, typically organized by the local running club to keep things interesting. In 2015, the participants in road running are as likely to be female as male and are as likely to run a 15-minute mile than a 6-minute mile. The majority of the races may not even have a running club involved. This is a whole new generation of runners. They may never have run before. They may be coming to the sport later in life. The cultural biases and walls of the sport have been broken down. You still have your racers, but race directors have realized that this is no longer their target market. The target market is the family, where dad may run one race and mom may run another race and someone is pushing little Johnny in the stroller. What does this mean? More races don't worry so much about attracting local elites. Less prize money is handed out at all these small charity races. The participants are more interested in the experience of the event than in the fact that it's a race. The change in demographics really gives the race a more family picnic vibe than the old race day or track meet vibe. It's quite lovely, in fact. Race trend number five. The race swag arms race. Because we now have 10 times more races chasing 10 times more runners, and they charge more money for the entry, there is an escalation of sorts, an arms race, as the events try to stand out in the herd. Races push the envelope with crazy venues, wacky shirts, macho challenges, and race medals the size of hubcaps. It's crazy. But some of these innovations stick and become part of our community culture. What does this mean? Well, race directors will keep looking for angles to attract the crowd. And this leads to folly in some cases, but to true and useful innovations in other. Some races will carve out a niche and uh, create a defensible market position with these innovations. Race trend number six, the for-profit event. Organizing a race is not an easy way to make money. I think I've said that. We have seen for-profit races emerge in most of the categories. At most distances, from Ragnar Relays to Rock and Roll, these races have been able to find a model, a business model, to drive participation for economies of scale, allowing them to eventually turn a profit. The end product is a race, but the organization is a business with investors and employees, and it's driven by market forces. So what does this mean? Well, as long as they're providing a product with enough value that people are willing to buy, then the for-profit races will continue. They will look to dominate niches where scale can be used to create efficiencies in capital and to drive profits. This creates more choice for the consumer, especially those runners who are looking for 
a predictable, professionally produced product. It's a classic market trend. We've seen it in many other markets. The growth of a market reaches a point where scale can be applied and larger companies, category killers, move in to sweep out the mom and pops. Your local drugstore, your local grocer, your local pet store are all among the casualties. And if market growth continues, it will happen potentially to your local road race. Race trend number seven, the rise of the slow runner. With the changing demographics of the sport, the average finishing times have shifted towards the longer end of the day. And this causes a challenge for race directors who have to keep the venue open and keep volunteers on on staff much longer. And how much longer? Well, if I look 25 years ago, the slowest runner might be a nine-minute miler. And today there's walkers moving at 22-minute miles or slower. That means that the race course, the police, all the volunteers have to be available two to three times longer. And this can cause stress on traditional events that were not designed to accommodate these slower runners. So what does this mean? Well, slower runners aren't going away and have just as much right to participate in an event as anyone else. And race directors will have to redesign events to accommodate or at least communicate these time constraints effectively. Events will continue to bifurcate between those catering to racing and those catering to walking. And during this transition period, the frankly ridiculous culture wars will continue as fast and slow alike, make their opinions known. And eventually it'll all settle down to a new norm that makes everybody or potentially nobody happy. In conclusion, it has been quite a ride in the road racing community over the last quarter century. You'd be hard-pressed to find a period of more growth and change. Depending on your perception, some changes are good, some are bad, and the sport morphs to embrace the new demographic. The nature of races has changed to keep up with the changing face of the average runner. There are more events, a greater variety of events, and more of us to run them. Like everything else in our world, the good ideas will prosper, and the less valid will die out. At the end of the day, a new normal will continue to emerge, and we, as customers, will continue to benefit from the change and growth of our sport. And now for today's featured interview. guys, it's Ann Brennan from Ann's Running Commentary, and Chris has given me a great job today. He's asked me to interview Laura Slajinski from 50 by 25, and she set a world record that she'll talk to us about today. So let me introduce you. Laura, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Great to speak with you today, Ann. Yeah, nice to talk to you. We have, we've had a little bit of a, a runaround trying to get this together, so I'm glad it finally, it finally worked out for us. Me too. So so I got that wrong. It's 50 by 25. Can you tell me what that means? Sure. So my goal was to run a marathon in all 50 states before my 25th birthday. Um, I completed that in June 2009, uh, about one month before my birthday. That just amazes me. I've got a lot of, uh, well, I'm old enough to have a 20-year-old son, so I know a lot of people who are under 20 and, and are, are, you know, actually under 30, and not many of them are as motivated as that. What made you do that? <laughs> well, I mean, it was something where at first I just kind of fell into it. Um, my original goal um, when I was about 20, 20 or 21 years old was just to be able to run one mile. Up to that point, I hadn't really been much of a runner um, I, I mean, and when I say much of a runner, I mean when I did that high school fitness test in gym class um, and they would ask you to do the mile, and I would maybe be able to do a quarter of a mile. Then I would get a stitch in my side, I would walk, and I would end up finishing the whole thing in about 15 or 16 minutes. So my okay. first goal was really just that I wanted to be able to run one mile without having to stop and walk. Um, it took me, honestly, uh, two months to be able to run okay. a mile. So hopefully that gives some encouragement to those of you out there who aren't runners but would like to try. Um, I definitely did not start out as a runner. Um, yeah, as a ch- I tell people, Laura, I tell people this all the time. I think people think it's easy. It's meant to be easy and that it's easy for everybody, and, and especially somebody who's done 50 marathons now, they look at you and say, oh, well, you know, of course it's easy for you. And, you know, and so you've got that beginning to say, no, 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 it's really not. You know, that's not where I came from. Yeah, it was absolutely something I had to work at. 
Um, you know, back in 2006, um, I didn't have a Garmin. I didn't have any fancy devices. Um, in order to figure out how far one mile was, I took my car and I drove it around the neighborhood until the odometer hit one mile and said, okay, that's what I need to be able to run if I want to say that I can do this. Um, uh, okay. So I think you can start from some pretty humble beginnings to learn to be a runner for sure. Yeah, exactly. Actually, by the way, that's that's old school. That's how we used to do it before we had Garmin. Yeah, before everybody had Garmin, we all did that. Yeah, I, I remember doing that in the very beginning as well. But that that was a lot of years ago. So, so when you decided to do your first marathon, did you know you were going to do your first marathon and then move on from there, or did you do your first marathon and get hooked? Um, I actually kind of fell into my first marathon even. Um, after I was first able to run one mile, um, I then took it upon myself to say, huh, you know, I never thought that I was a runner. I wonder if I could run two miles. Or I wonder if I could run three miles. Just adding a little bit more to the distance that I was running, thinking that eventually I was going to reach some sort of stopping point where I wouldn't be able to run anymore until one day I went out and I did about a 20-mile run. I hadn't been training for a marathon at that point, but I had also read enough about marathon training plans to know that that was about as far as you needed to go. So I decided that I would sign up for a marathon. Honestly, didn't know if I would finish. I kind of thought, well, I'll see how far I can go, but maybe I'll be able to make it the whole 26 or maybe I won't. The first marathon that I did was the Key Bank, Vermont City Marathon in Burlington, Vermont. And the reason that I picked it was actually because Ben & Jerry's was one of the big sponsors of the race, and they offered all-you-could-eat ice cream at the finish line. Oh, that's, that's a great reason to do a race. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I figured if anything was going to get me to the finish line, it was going to be the promise of all-you-could-eat ice cream there. It's funny. Um, but, it seems to be that it's food for women and it's beer for men. If they, it if really enough, is. If beer's good enough at the end, men will run it. If it's if it's food, the women will run it. So I, I think that's equal. Or wine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I know a lot of runners who are purists and they say that's not a good reason to run, but I say whatever gets you out there, that's the important thing. And it doesn't matter. I, I believe the same thing. I, I think yeah. the same thing. So, <laughs> I am more than so, happy to that I run for ice cream. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I would be cake. Cake's my thing. So, so what is your, you know, you, you've done all these marathons. How does that, how do the other ones compare to that first one? You, you know, I say a lot of times that your first one, there's no one like your first one. You'll never have another one like that. So how did it compare to win all the ones after that? I mean, I think it's true that nothing ever quite compares to your first one. But I have to say, I was pretty surprised at how magical so many of them happened to be. It probably took me about 20 marathons before I lined up at the starting line being confident that I would finish. Okay. For that first 20, every single time, I kind of thought, well, maybe all those other ones are a fluke. Maybe I'm not meant to run a marathon, and maybe today's the day I'll find out that, no, no, that was just some weird you know, freak of nature thing that I was able to do them. Eventually, I did get more confidence in my long-distance running abilities and said, okay, you know, I know I can do this. But even still, every time I cross the finish line of a marathon, doesn't matter if it's my 20th or if it's my 100th, I still just get this feeling of excitement and amazement that I've done something that I think I wasn't supposed to be able to do. You know, growing up, I thought, I'm just not athletic. I'm not a runner. And so now, every time I cross the finish line, I, it feels like I accomplished the impossible. You know, I, I wonder that about other people, whether how many people, for me, it was very similar. It took me a long time before I would say I was a runner. When I became a writer, I started writing, and I would say I'm a writer. You know, or if I, you know, whatever I've done, when I had, once I had a baby, I'm a mom, right? So each yeah. time, I, all of those things, I become whatever I'm doing. But with running, so often I hear people say, oh, I'm really not a runner. You know, even mm -hmm. if they've done marathons, even if they've done ultras, they'll say, oh, I'm really not a runner. And I, I wonder what it is about running that makes people say, yeah, I'm not sure that's what I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what it is either. Um, I think we have this view of runners as being these elite Olympic-level athletes, and we're reluctant to compare ourselves to them. But really, I mean, you're a runner if you go out and you run one mile a couple times a week. I say that makes you a runner. Exactly. You know, I met a 
wonderful man this week. He, I think at 85 years old, he came in. I, I work at a running shoe store these days, and he came in to buy a pair of running shoes. And I said, so how are you running? He says, well, I'm walk running. And I said, oh, okay. I said, I, I do some walk running as well. I run, run a mile, walk a minute. He says, well, I walk, and then sometimes I say, I'm going to race to that mailbox. And he says, and that's how I do my my walk and run. So mostly I walk, but then I put some runs in there just for the fun of it. And I thought, yeah, you're a runner. So, but it's, it was really nice to hear him say that because he said, you know, he called himself a runner right from the beginning. It wasn't, you know, I'm not really that. But that's really great. Was, I wish everybody would have the confidence to say that right from the beginning. Um, oh, running yeah, in an exclusive yeah. club is very inclusive, and I think that's one of the things that is just the most wonderful thing about the sport of running is you can line up on the starting line right alongside Olympic-caliber athletes, and, and it's just amazing how what a wonderful community it is. Oh, it really is, and, and we've you know we've gone to Boston a couple of times and and been up there with some of the, you know really the elite guys and and talk to them. They talk to you just like you're you know you're the same, even though they're so much faster than you. They're they're so humble about it, and they and they know that you're doing the same thing they're doing, just at a different you know just at a different level, and they don't consider that level most of the time. Mm-hmm. One so, of the best stories I ever heard about running was about one of the uh, elites who did the Boston Marathon finishes the race, you know, sticks around for interviews, then goes back to his hotel, showers, comes back to the finish line and in order to do more interviews uh, there. And at that time, you know, some of the some of the back of the Packers are finishing the Boston Marathon. And somebody goes up to him and they said, you know, I just want to congratulate you. You run so fast. I think it's so amazing. And the elite athlete said, well, I want to congratulate you. You're out there twice as long you know, sweating like crazy, working your tail off. Um, so I think you're the one who needs the congratulations. That really sums up what the sport's all about. It really yep. does. So at what point you did the you did your first marathon, and that was what you said you, that was just kind of a let me do this and see how it goes. So at what point did you say, hey, I think I'll do 50? Um, it wasn't for probably five or six marathons. I just had the best time running my first marathon, getting that wonderful runner's high and crossing the finish line, that feeling of amazement. So I finished, and I thought, you know, when can I do that again? I want to do it again. So I actually did my second marathon about a month later and had a great time with that one as well. So I started doing them pretty frequently. Um, over the course of doing this, I ran into Dean Karnazes. Um, he was speaking at the San Francisco Marathon that year. And I told him, you know, I love doing marathons. Um, I think I might be want I might want to become one of those people who does marathon in all fifty states. Um, not quickly, but you know, over time, someday that might be a good goal to have. And right. he said, "Well, wouldn't you be the youngest woman to ever do that?" And I said, "I have no idea. You know, I'll have to go look that up." And at the time, I was uh, twenty three years old, and when I looked it up, I found that the youngest woman to do that had been twenty nine. So I thought, well, surely in six years I can do that. From that point on, you know, the race was on. Um, I tried to do it fairly quickly so that I could break the record by a lot. Um, right. And this became a lot of fun, just traveling around, meeting different people, and getting to keep crossing marathon finish lines. That's, that is wonderful. How, how long did it take you to go from, you know, your one to your 50? Or even, let's say that, you said well, that was about five, your fifth marathon. So how, how long did it take you to finish that 50 then after that? Um, it took me two years and one week to do uh, that first, to do the 50 states. I was really excited because, you know, I didn't necessarily run just one in every state. There were a couple times where I went back to ones that I loved and that sort of thing. So for me, one thing that was really wonderful was getting to go back to Vermont for Memorial Day two years after my first marathon. Uh-huh. run that marathon, and then six days later is when I uh, broke the world record and did my 50th state. Oh, that's awesome. So That's great to do those again like that. Exactly. So, so what was the toughest? I mean, I, I read, I, I went to your blog, which I love, by the way, but I went oh. to your blog, and there was a couple of times where you talked about doing two in a weekend. Were those the toughest, <laughs> or was there something else that was tougher? Those were actually not the toughest, but I will tell you um, one story to illustrate just the two in a weekend. Saturday, I ran a marathon in New Hampshire and then drove to Maine with some friends and prepared to run the Maine Marathon the next morning. 
Um, and while at our hotel, we all said, well, let's order pizza. I ordered something that I thought was going to be a personal size pizza, and it came, and it was actually a very large, you know, pizza that was meant to feed, mul- feed multiple people. Um, but I ended up just, you know, sitting there saying, okay, I'll have some, and then maybe I'll save the rest for later. Found myself reaching for another slice and realizing that the box was empty, and I had actually eaten an entire pizza by myself. Oh, my well, I would bet. I mean, if you're doing that much running, I mean, you had to have been doing pretty much a, at least a marathon a weekend, right? And then sometimes two? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. As far as the toughest one that I did, though, it was actually one, and it was in the Mojave Desert in Nevada. At that point, it was probably somewhere right around my 20th marathon, and it was around that point where I had stopped wondering, can I finish this race? And I kind of missed that question and that challenge. You know, it had uh-huh. become much more of, I wonder how fast I can finish rather than can I finish. So I signed up for this marathon, which was called Running with the Devil. It took place at the end of June in the Mojave Desert, um, and it started at, I believe, 11 a.m., so that you were sure to be out there in the heat of the day. Um, You had to get weighed in at the start and at a few different points along the way to make sure that you weren't becoming too dehydrated. And it was 119 degrees Fahrenheit at the start of the race. So that one was just absolutely brutal. Um, I had I, gone into I love that. I love that you decided. Okay, I'm going to do these 50. For me, if I decided that, I would say, okay. So, what are the easiest 50 races I could do? <laughs> but no, you pick. You know, the run with the devil. <laughs> I mean, that one at least. But I have to say, I went into it thinking that I wanted the challenge. And you know, the end of that day, I just remember leaving thinking, I'm never challenging myself ever again. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. So have you challenged yourself again? I have done a few more challenges. Um, I haven't run in that kind of heat since then, but um, I've done a few ultra marathons, which for me were a pretty big challenge to see if I could do distance beyond 26.2. So I see now you're doing some pacing in marathons. Love pacing. I think it is the most wonderful way to run a marathon. You know, I mean, going back to that same point about at some point, I wondered if I would be able to finish the marathon, and then it became kind of, oh, you know, no problem. I know I can finish. It's just a question of what time. So pacing for me became an, just an amazing way to get to meet people and get to see them do something that they thought that they couldn't do. I love running and pacing first-time marathoners who, you know, get out there and they're nervous, and they they say to me, even as a pacer, they say, you know, I'm going to try to stick with you, but... You know, I might I might drop off at some point. Feel free to leave me behind. And I try my best not to leave anybody behind. My favorite part of pacing a marathon is in that very last mile, from 25 to 26. I tell my group right at the beginning of the race that I'm going to be nice and I'm going to be fun the whole way, but that if you get to mile 25 with me and then you try to drop off and slow down, um, I am not going to be nice and fun anymore because I know you can do it and I want to push you to uh, do your best. So I've really just had the amazing pleasure and fortune to be able to pace so many first-time marathoners to reach their goals, complete a marathon frequently in times that they never thought that they were going to be able to achieve. I think that's a great way to give back. So, And I love that last – I think that last mile is so amazing because, I think you know, crossing the finish line is wonderful, and there's a great feeling to it. But in that last mile when it suddenly clicks, oh, my God, I'm really going to do this. You know, I really am going to do this. It's, it's a it's a nice way to kind of ease into that, cro- you know, crossing the finish line. I, I really enjoyed that last mile. I think it's a lot of fun. So Yeah. So For me, the other thing that I just love about the last mile is at that point, it is absolutely mental. You know, I tell the runners that I'm with, think of all the marathons I've done, and yet I'm still sore during this part. I'm still hurting. You can't give up just because you're sore in that last mile because everybody's sore in the last mile. The people who make it through that last mile at their whole pace are the ones who push through mentally rather than physically. Right. I, I think most of the race, honestly, is, is mental. I really think, you know, if you go out there and know you can do it and just say, I'm, doing, I'm going to do this no matter what, I think it just makes it so much easier than if you go into it doubting what your, what your abilities are. And I think that's pretty much the way of, of any, just about any race you do. If you've got the mental aspect of it. You can really get through it. 
I completely agree. I mean, my fastest races have never been the courses that were the easiest or the races where I was the most well-trained, but they were the ones where I went into it with a great attitude, thinking, I know I can do this, you know, woke up feeling good about it and managed to pull out PRs on those days. Exactly, exactly. So what will you do next? You've done your 50 and now you're doing ultras. What will you do next to challenge yourself? So I recently moved uh, in the spring of this year out to Colorado, my previous home in New York City. So for now, I've actually been taking a little bit of a break from running. Um, I'm still going out there and, you know, going for a run from time to time, but it's usually more on trails rather than roads. And I've really just been kind of letting myself enjoy the hiking, biking, and all the other outdoorsy activities out here. I'm sure I'll be getting back to marathons sometime soon, but for me it's just really nice to try out some different uh, outdoor sports right now. It's good for your mind, and it is good for coming back. You you take a break, and then it doesn't become this tedious thing that you have to do. It, you That's have exactly it. Um, I think it's really important with running, particularly with marathons, so many people burn out during their training. And if right. you are going into it every week saying, oh, gosh, I don't want to run this week, maybe it's time to reevaluate the marathon as a goal. I mean, the marathon, it doesn't have to be the end goal for everybody. Um, some people want to run fast 5Ks. Some people want to run a marathon. But I don't think the marathon is for everybody in that it's supposed to be fun. If it's not fun, then don't set that as a goal. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I completely, I think I, I've actually been going through that myself or I'm questioning what I'm doing right now. It's just, am I burned out or am I just not really happy right now with this <laughs> with my training? So I have two this fall, so we'll see how that goes. So, Which two are so, you doing this fall? I'm going to do the NCR trail in November, and I'm doing the Marine Corps Marathon. That'll be my seventh Marine Corps in October. I'm doing that for prostate cancer with my coach. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, and actually, um, I think Chris is doing it as well. Those two are such different races, too. That's going to be such a great fall marathon lineup. Yeah, I think it'll be a lot. My husband did the NCR trail and um, to qualify for Boston, and he loved it. And he's been ta- trying to talk me into it for a couple of years now. So I finally said, okay, maybe I'll do it this year. Um, and, well, and I got well, it. I've done it twice. Um, I don't do races twice unless I really like them. And NCR trail is just such a beautiful race, and it's so fun getting to see all the other runners go by on the out and back. Exactly. You know, and actually what you just said, I I don't do very many races twice, but that Marine Corps Marathon, I just love that race. I love the Marines. I love, I know it's crowded, but I love the crowds. I love the scenery. I just love everything about it. So seven of those is, is I keep thinking, maybe I won't do it next year. I'm like, nope, I will. <laughs> That's a great reason to do it. Exactly. I just love that. And that's, I think, why I won't give up this one, even though I'm even though I'm not loving the training right now. One of the things I think, and I don't know if you had a chance to read my blog, but I write a lot about the lessons you learn while you're running. Do you mm-hmm. find that you're out there learning, that, that you're able to apply the things you learn when you're running into regular life? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've written, actually, uh, quite a few posts um, on my own blog and also guest blogs over places like Daily Burn on things that I learned running marathons. I think the marathon is such a great metaphor for life. So you take kind of the lessons like don't give up until you've actually crossed the finish line. It's things like remembering that it's not about how you perform the day of the marathon. You can still be proud of all the training that you put into it, even if things happen beyond your control. Um, I mean, I think those are great lessons for just about everything you do in life. Exactly. I teach a lot of these things to my kids. I said to them, you know, my, my son says to me, I can't learn to read. And I said to me, people, everybody learns to read. They just do. So you will do it. It's think about mommy. Mommy does goes out and I run these crazy long distances. But it would be so easy to say, I can't do that. I can't run 50 miles. I can't run a marathon today. But if you think about it and you really put your mind to it, you can. And it's so fun to watch him kind of learn those lessons through my running. So yeah, that's a, wonderful. Um, and, that, yeah. I mean, that's so great as well that you can be a role model for him in those things because I think I think everybody should get those lessons, whether it's through running, running something themselves or even having a close friend. You know, I know some of my friends who don't run 
have seen me go from non-runner to marathoner, and so I feel like they've learned a lot from that as well. I was about to say that about you. I bet that, especially at your age, to watch somebody, you know, at 23 and, and watch what you were going through and how you were doing it, uh, you had to have gotten some interesting uh, reactions from friends. Oh, definitely. I mean, at first, at first a lot of people didn't believe it because I had always been so anti-running. And I think my closest friends were kind of with me for the whole journey, so to them it kind of made sense. Whereas I loved getting to go back for my high school reunion to people that I hadn't talked to in years and get to tell them, you know, I'm a runner now and see their faces just get very confused because Laura was always the one who hated running and couldn't run. <laughs> the, tra- the transition can be really gradual when you're in it, but for those uh-huh. of you who are with you every step of the way, it can seem pretty radical. Right, exactly. But the other thing is I'm sure you inspired them. I'm sure there are people who, who looked and said, well, gosh, Laura did this, and she didn't even like running. <laughs> you know, and so, so maybe it pushes them to go out and do it as well. Yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky. Um, I've had a lot of friends who have been asking me to help them train for marathons. Um, one of my favorite experiences was actually my mother and I trained for and ran a half marathon together. We got to hold hands as we crossed the finish line, run the whole thing together, and that was one of the proudest races of my life was getting to run that with her. Oh, I bet it was. I bet it was. So, Well, Laura, I'm so glad that Chris introduced us. I'm going to keep following your blog, and I hope I get get to talk to you again soon. I hope so, too. Definitely looking forward to hearing how your races this fall go, especially. Yeah, check out you know, check out my blog if you get a chance, and I, I will keep doing the same thing to you. Tell us how we can you know how other people can keep in tra- track with you. Sure. So I write a blog at fifty by twenty five dot com five zero b y two five dot com. I do write a lot about running. I write my race reports on there, but I also talk a lot about general goal setting, um, productivity lessons, uh, things that I've learned from running or from other things in life that I just want to be able to share with other people. So definitely check that out. Guys, if you haven't checked that out, please do go and check it out because I really love it. I've been reading it the past few weeks and have really enjoyed it. So, all right, Laura, thank you so much for letting me interview you today. And this is, like I said, my first interview live, so I'm pretty excited about it. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I am grateful for having the gift of a curious and active mind and a desire to improve myself. One powerful, easy, small habit. Make one person smile today. This month was the 30th anniversary of the movie The Breakfast Club. Do you remember that movie? Ali Sheedy played the character Allison, the basket case. And Allison had some prophetic lines. She said, when you grow up, your heart dies. (laughs) And you don't have a choice. We all become our parents. And it's true in a way. It's physical, mental, and cultural entropy that we don't even notice as we go through life. The heat death of the individual. But you can fight it. You can rage against the dying of the light. You have to commit to being a student of life and having the mind of an apprentice. You can't let the crust of the known concrete the daily adventure of life and the cultivation of new things and new paths. Of course we become our parents. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be done without choice. Your parents gave you a lot of good and maybe a little bad. (laughs) Think of it as two lists, right? Picture that you're holding a list in each hand. One contains all the shit and baggage and crappy stuff that you inherited, and the other has all the wonders and joys. You get to choose to embrace one, and you get to crumple the other one up and throw it away. You get to change, potentially for the better, every day. I have been learning and practicing this week by running social experiments as I'm traveling. One of the things I'm practicing is creating tiny habits. We all know about broad habit changes and how habits work. And you remember me talking about the fact that there are keystone habits you can change that will create cascading changes in your life. Tiny habits are an extension of the habit theory. 
If you're struggling with embracing new habits, then perhaps you're trying to do too much, trying to bite off more than you can chew. Try choosing something so small that it's impossible to fail and then build momentum on that success. My tiny habit this week was to make one person smile each day. This tiny habit is extremely fun and rewarding and in an otherwise dreary day, quite cool. I know, this sounds super easy, but not so fast. My week started Monday morning with a dash to the airport. When I travel, I'm not antisocial per se, but I am a professional traveler, and I'm usually dialed in to what I'm doing and not interacting much. I would have to change that. I would have to interact. Contrary to popular belief, I'm not a naturally outgoing person. I don't like being in strange places with strangers. How do you interact with strangers? How do you do it in such a way as to get them to smile? Where does one find the behavior to model? Who are the experts in this field? Not the naturally adept, but those who have broken down the mechanics and deconstructed successful social interactions. By the way, and where were these guys in middle school when I needed them? Well, it turns out that this is a much-studied social problem that has been taken on by a group of contemporary psychologists known to us as PUAs, or pickup artists. challenge of talking to strangers, it seems, is the same as the challenge of meeting women in bars. <laughs> so now, it's a bit easier for me because I just want to make people smile, not get them into the sack or get their phone number, and I'm not in bars. I'm just walking around in the world, interacting with all kinds of people. So how do the pros do it? They use charm, they use body language, they use banter, and they use rapport building. So first, let's look at the, the body language you use to open up with a stranger, to make that contact. Let's say there's two people talking. How do you approach them and send the right nonverbal message? How do you not look creepy or needy? It's all about body language. When you enter the environment, whether it's a boardroom, a laundromat, or a coffee shop, you go in with strong body language. Head up, big smile, body upright, shoulders back. Don't slouch. Don't look at the floor or scan around in a panic. Keep your hands out of your pockets. Walk into the environment and approach people, not like you own the place, but like you're having so much fun and you're so confident of your own joy that there's nothing in the approach that could change that feeling. You're on top of the world. This is the body language you have when you approach people. Make sure you smile. Smile is important. Show those teeth. You look wonderful and engaging when you smile. You should do it all the time. And the last thing is eye contact. When you engage people, you need to make and hold eye contact. If you're smiling and open, it won't be creepy. Smile with your eyes. Eye contact is an extremely powerful and human thing that we seem to have gotten away from in our world. When you make eye contact, hold it. Don't quickly look away like a lot of people do. That shows a lack of confidence. That's a display of social weakness, and it worries people. When and if you do start to engage, you can hold the eye contact for a few seconds, release it, and come back to it so it's not some sort of creepy staring contest either, right? So the eyes are the window to the soul. Good, solid eye contact sends a very powerful message that you are confident in your own skin and interested in connecting with that other human. If you can only manage the tiny habit of eye contact, try that. Just try to catch the eye of everyone you walk past. And if you can catch their eye, give them a big smile. And guess what they'll usually do in return? Yeah they'll smile. Yes, I am indeed talking about actively approaching and talking to strangers. Does that scare you? What's the worst that can happen? They don't engage. You haven't lost anything. What's the potential upside? You meet some cool new people and have a meaningful interaction with them. If your goal is simply to make them smile, there really is no pressure. Keep it simple. Don't be outcome-focused. If your goal is to convert them or sell them or bed them, then you're going to feel the pressure and it's going to color your interaction. 
drop that emotional attachment to the result. It's not about you, it's about them. Simplify. Make them smile. So here are my case studies from a travel day. How did my Monday travel day go? Well, I started by having to get up too early, fight traffic, missed my first flight, got my second flight delayed. Sounds like a wonderful day, right? A nightmare scenario? I should have been grumpy and whiny, right? Ah, contraire, mon ami. I had a wonderful day engaging strangers and making people smile. At my third attempt to find the right place to check in for my flight to Toronto, which I had already missed, I arrived out of breath and damp at a ticket counter staffed by three women, two of which looked to be having some sort of negative gossipy conversation. So I put my plan into action. I fixed my body language, put on a big smile, and approached them with a, Are you ladies complaining again? This is an example of what the, the PUAs call banter. The supervisor of the two was a bit knocked out of her frame of reference, but read my body language and engaged, and she started to explain to me that they weren't complaining, they were talking about dealing with difficult people. I made solid eye contact, I commiserated with them, and I shared some of my wisdom on the subject about how it's not about you, it's about them, and you can't take part in their negative interactions. I built rapport. They worked on getting me rescheduled in a boarding pass, but the system wouldn't take my global entry status to get me the expedited security. The woman next to me was having the same issue. But now these two, they were solidly on the bus. They were members of Team Chris. They worked that system four different ways until they got me my expedited security. Problem solved. I made them smile. I had a couple hours to kill, so my next stop was Starbucks. The woman who had been checking in next to me was in line behind me, and I turned to her with my body language, smile, and eye contact, and said, They should just dispense the coffee with the boarding pass. Banter. She engaged. She told me all about how this is the only place that struggles with global entry process. We talked about the weather, and then she made the grave mistake of mentioning how hard it is to run in Boston in the winter, and it was on. Rapport. That interaction ended with us trading business cards and my promise to introduce her to my coach and send her the information about my road race. Next, I was sitting at the gate in the departure lounge, and the guy next to me is talking on the phone using words that are familiar to me. So I opened him with, sounds like we're in the same industry, banter. He engaged, telling me about it. I was able to tell him I had dinner with his boss's bosses earlier in the year, rapport. We traded cards. Another contact in the industry, personal network expanded. He may have even smiled. And finally, I made it to my appointments and got some solid work done, and we made our way to the hotel at the end of the day to check in. I turned to my colleague, who is a woman, and referring to the young lady who was helping me at the front desk, with the appropriate body language and smile, I said, doesn't she have a great smile? And the young lady just lit up. She was beaming. And she proceeded to personally walk me around the hotel lobby and point out all of the features of the place. I definitely made her smile. Have you gotten my point yet? Small habits can change you. Small habits can change other people and change the world. The same skills that pickup artists have been practicing for years in the art of seduction are not specific to sweaty romps and one-night stands. These are the social skills of interacting with other humans. These are basic human skills that can change your life. Body language, smiling, eye contact, banter, rapport. Whether you're an engineer, a teacher, a consultant, or a salesperson, life is about human-to-human interactions. Make someone smile. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. Oi, oi, oi. Come on, let's have some energy. Pick it up, buttercup. Hmm. Got a little bit of a rumbly in my tumbly today. Had to make not one, but two pit stops in the woods on my run and I'm feeling a bit jet-lagged. I've got that funky playlist going now, and I'm tapping out this semi-screed for you, or I guess for us. I had a funny idea while I was out running today for a short story based 
in the not-so-distant future where the people who come in last in the race get all the prizes and, and praise, and no one wants to win because the winners get tied to a post and stoned for being unfeeling bastards. What do you think? Sounds good. I forgot to tell you folks that I've been steadily upgrading my hardware over the last few months. I got the new iPhone 6, and I really like it. Not the super big one, just the um, just a little bit bigger one. And I replaced my laptop with a Surface Pro 3 a couple months ago, and I've grown to like it, especially for travel. And finally, I lost those Bluetooth headphones that Hilton sent me, ironically by leaving them in a Marriott. But I like that no-strings-attached option. And I bought another pair. These are called an MPOW, M-P-O-W, Cheetah Sport Bluetooth 4.1 headphone. And they're good, but they're those ones that go all the way into the ear canal, which can be a little bit uncomfortable and frankly dangerous, because you really can't hear anything else. And so far, my toxic body juices haven't killed the headphones. But the battery life seems a little short, maybe four hours. And of course, the uh, microphone sucks. If you if you wanted to use them to talk on the phone, that would be a bad idea. But that's not why I bought them. When I was uh, up at the start of the Eastern States 20, I had a great chat with Team Hoyt. Rick and Dick were there, as well as Brian Lyons, who is pushing Rick in the longer races now. And I was talking to Dick, who still pushes Rick in the shorter races. Dick was telling me how he was having back pain. And now that he's retired, not retired from pushing Ricky, but retired in general from work, he's got a lot more time and he can get, he's got a physio, a coach, and he's been doing core work every day and he feels great. So does it ever feel to you like everyone is having the same conversation at the same time? So Dick was telling me about how great having a strong core is. This dude's 75 years old, right? So I want to thank all of you who helped me make my goal for fundraising for Team Hoyt for Boston. I hope to get Brian, Brian Lyons, on before the race in the next show. But he was funny. He was nervous. He's telling me he's not good with media, which made me laugh because, like, like I'm Geraldo or something. Uh, I did some quick math and figured out that I've got somewhere around five to 600 miles on these hokas I'm wearing. And they still feel fine, but I can, you know, I can feel them getting a little bit loose, uh, especially with the winter we had. They, they put up a lot of abuse. Time to start looking for a new pair of something. And, but I'm not going to change horses before Boston. That's only a couple weeks away. But as a lesson, in general, don't do what I do. Do what I say. Don't do what I do. Uh, and what I do is I usually just run in a pair of shoes until, until they fail essentially and you know they fail because like your knees are start to hurt or something and you you shouldn't do that you should always have a couple of pair in rotation and switch back and forth so you don't get that sort of repetitive injuries well my lovelies i have to let you go i'm so far behind in my work that i may never dig out and it's friday afternoon my motivation and energy flows from me and spreads like a dark puddle across the hardwood floor here in my home office, the warmth of a comfortable bed, the friendly embrace of the couch, and the warm dopamine drip of procrastination are sucking at my mind. Last week, I played hooky one weekday, one weekday afternoon, and I went into Chinatown with my daughter in Boston. And we had a blast knocking around the little Chinese shops and eating at a shabu-shabu restaurant, which I know is Japanese food. Don't yell at me for that. But we didn't roll back home until around, you know, after 8 o'clock at night. And I still had to get my run in. So the weather had taken a turn for the better, which means it wasn't snowing. And the hulking drifts had retreated from the roads a bit. And there was not a cloud in the sky. And there was not a breath of wind. And there was a quarter moon and a full sky of stars. It was about 28 degrees, warm enough to allow some freedom from the atrocious and common winter bulk of accoutrement of the past three months. A soundless night. And I made my way over through the old neighborhood, where I bought my first little house and settled with my new bride in 1985 at the age of 22. I remember struggling to run a two-mile loop over there 
when I started my fitful return to fitness in my late 20s. I ran down the sidewalks of my life and looked in the windows of my memories and felt at peace and full of joy. I remembered the nights like this, when all is effortless and joyful. Those are the reason I train and race and strive. It's the quiet and beautiful moments that sneak up on you while you are busy living that teach you how precious living is. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Transformative lice... <laughs> lice lessons. <laughs>